Hey, this uh, conversation um, is with an incredible couple, Jen and Troy Wallace. Troy is a is a rabbi. This conversation is all about the Jewish context of scripture, the Hebrew context of scripture, the Jewishness of Jesus, and why understanding that Jesus was in fact Jewish is, is actually so vital to us understanding the depths of scripture and just how much comes alive to us when we get to know that. So I'm super excited for you to, to see this conversation. And as you're going to see, I hope it causes some questions to come up for you. You have some really sweet moments with the Lord, kind of digging in with those questions. But um, let's tune in. Let's draw our attention to this conversation with Jen and Troy Wallace. It's going to be awesome. Hope it encourages you. Get some notes. Get a notepad. Get your Bible out. A lot of scripture is shared. And uh, get ready to learn uh, together. We'll, we'll see you here. Hey, we're going to... Um, tonight, we're... The, the hope is that we can continue the conversation a little bit um, about kind of if we kind of phrase it with a subject, the real Jesus and, and kind of understanding the Hebrew context of, of scripture. And um, tonight is a, is a great opportunity for us to learn a lot about scripture and, but even more important, like who Jesus is, who he is. And um, as, we, as we jump into this, um, one of the things as I, as I got married, um, one of the things you, you learn is that it's kind of important to know your spouse's family. Um, you get to know you get to know their family, and and by getting to know their family and and where they come from and history and culture and all of that, um, it, it allows me to know my wife all the more, and allows me to to just see what makes her her, and it, it brings so much beauty to to her to understand where she's where she's been, where she's come from, and and all of these things that make up who her family is. And so, um, as we've kind of gone through the series, one of the things we've realized is is it's 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 similar even even with with Jesus and our relationship with him is understanding um, his history and who he is. Um, a, a lot of times in church, we, we focus just on, on the, the God, you know, uh, rather than the man and, and who he is as, as the man as well. And so um, tonight we're going to uh, dig into this a little bit. And so um, as, we, as we kick it off, I want to remind you uh, the, the phone number is on up here uh, on the screen above. And if you have questions as we, as we dive into this conversation, um, feel free to text them in. We'll get them. We'll be able to kind of look at them. We have compiled a, a, a significant list of questions as well. Um, but we're, we're excited to have you guys with us. We're so, glad to be here for sure. Um, tell us a little bit before we jump to the deep end of the pool, cause we're pretty much going to do that in like five minutes. Um, tell us a little bit about who you are, obviously introduce yourselves, who you are, tell us a little bit about your family, like what makes, who is Jen and Troy and what makes you, you? Well, I'm Jen and this is Troy. I'm Troy. And we have three beautiful kiddos that are in the back. They've been tasked with being really quiet during this, um, but we have Nehemiah, who is six, and Ava, who is eight, and Lila, who is ten, and we have been in Arizona for six years, and at Gateway for four of those years, and have loved being a part of this community so much. The thing that brought us out here is Troy's work. He works for an organization called Jewish Voice Ministries, and they take the gospel to Jewish people all around the world. It's super cool. Um, before that, we were in Maryland serving at a Messianic Jewish congregation there. And before that, we met in Colorado, where I'm from, and very proud. Anyone in here from Colorado? Yes, one. All right. <laughs> um, we met in Colorado, and I actually was working. I'm, I'm Jewish, but I was working at a church there, and I just knew, like, uh, I know, like, my last name's Cohen. I know that's Jewish, but... 
I'm a Christian now. I go to church. And it wasn't until I met this Messianic Jewish guy through a mutual friend, and I realized, wait, Jesus and Jewishness, those can go together? I don't understand. And us meeting sort of started this exploration in me of understanding who I was as a Jewish woman. Um, on the side, I fell in love, so that was really great. Lucky me. Bonus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's kind of who we are, our life since getting married, his life before we met, and then together is really committed to sharing who Jesus is with Jewish people and sharing with them who their Messiah is. So that's kind of what we're about. Yeah, so that's like really the story of our family, but also what we kind of do with our lives is not just put Jesus in Jewish context for the sake of the history of things being put in right order, but also we put Jesus in Jewish context among Jewish people. Our relatives, the places that we go and minister, the places that we've served. And so actually, Isaac, I'd say being here at Gateway in a primary, primarily church family has been a big adjustment for us as a family. Uh, and you might say, well, why, why is that? Well, we were serving in a Messianic Jewish synagogue. That's where I grew up. And actually, four years ago, when we became members at Gateway, was the first time I'd ever been a member of a Christian church. Now, that's not been Jen's experience, but that was my experience. And so it's really been something special to get kind of woven into uh, the Gateway church family. And I say that uh, uh, it's, it's just incredible to be among so many people who are going hard after Jesus, but not from a Jewish context, and us having to figure out where we fit and when to, when to, when to speak up and when to just kind of let things ride, like it's such a different experience for us. But our kids are really growing in the Lord, um, and we're just blessed to be a part of the family. So it's, it's fun to not just talk about it, but we actually get to live it in terms of weaving right. the Jewishness of Jesus into a Christian community. It's really yeah. something special for us. Yeah. And how long have you guys been married? Uh, it is. Uh, this is wow. a test. This is 13 I didn't, years. I didn't write that question down <laughs> ahead of time for them. So we didn't prepare. Probably... No, no. 13 years. <laughs> 13 years in, in August, it'll be 13 years. You nice. Passed the yeah. test. Nice. Well, hopefully, I don't get a text. Did I later. say August? It's September. Yeah. Yeah. I said you passed the test. Oh, yeah, but yeah. I said We should August. probably just oh, get yeah, into so the questions okay. we prepared anyway, for tonight. I failed the test, and she didn't even know that I failed the <laughs> test. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get into the questions we prepared for tonight so we don't uh, cause any more issues. Um, well, I need to point out that another point of contention tonight is that I wore these stripes and she wore those stripes. And I we didn't figure that out until first. we were in the car together. Yeah, so I just was... want you all to know we like stripes. That's nice. Us. Nice. The Wallace family likes stripes. <laughs> hey, um... One of the things I hope throughout the series, uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna hit kind of some practical, some of the, you know, some of the kind of easier practical questions, maybe right away. They seem practical to me, um, but obviously each of these questions, and um, I know many of us haven't had the opportunity. We had opportunity as a staff to sit down with with Jen and with Troy um, throughout this series and kind of ask some questions that have come up throughout this series um, and throughout our intentional study into. Um, really just the life of Jesus. And, um, and uh, it, it was such a sweet time as we got to ask questions and, and in such a safe place and really just ask from a place in, in a lot of ways of just like ignorance, like I don't know, but I feel this, I don't know. Um, and so I wanna encourage you um, throughout this series, 
I would say, and we'll get into this a little bit, but hopefully some questions have come up for you throughout this series. Um, hopefully it has caused you to ask more questions of scripture, ask more questions of who Jesus is um, throughout, throughout this entire series. And to be honest, tonight, part of the goal is to cause you to have more questions than you came in here with. And uh, we'll, I'll allow Troy to kind of elaborate a little bit on that. Um, but but it's, it's, it's just such a beautiful thing when it, just the difference between how we often in a Western context approach scripture and approach questions as a whole. Like we desperately search for answers. And if we can't find answers that are easy, um, it just must be wrong. Uh, but that's completely contrary to to your experience, yeah, correct. Do you want to just start there? Yeah, Isaac, I think it's great, kind of just to kind of kick it off. You know, we were talking uh, along the way, Isaac and I, and in this conversation, the reality of the power of questions. Actually, I think Pastor Brad, and I think the way even that the service is designed here, uh, where every week on the weekend we take a few minutes to ask one another questions, it it it, it taps into something that we really celebrate in a Jewish worldview, which I think sometimes is in contrast to a Christian worldview. Christians are often approaching theology systematically, which means that we're asking questions so that we can get answers, whereas the Jewish experience is very different. The questions, a good question is actually better than whatever the answer might be, and that's a totally different framework for a lot of people. So, Isaac, I think what you just set up of if you came in here tonight and you walk away with more questions, I feel like that's a win. Why is that a win? That sounds so maybe different than our Western rationalized approach to, to discover the answer. Uh, the journey sometimes is more important than the destination when it comes to searching out God. Who God is is so gigantic and so unfathomable that if we were to just ask questions of him every day of our life, I think that he would come to the end of things with us and say, hey, you did a good job trying to pursue me and to chase after me. And so I think that the power of questions is something that we celebrate in the Jewish community. And it's something that's, made, again, a little different or it's some, it sets up a tension with Christianity at times. Uh, we're comfortable. And, and uh, another friend of ours, uh, Rabbi Matt Rosenberg, was a part of the series here at Gateway one weekend. Uh, we celebrate different answers to the same question because it pushes us in our relationship, not just with God, but with each other. Yeah. And so I, I don't know if you want to dig any more into that, Isaac. Uh, yeah, no, I think, I think that's a good, like, especially in our, in our Western Christian context, like, if we don't agree, it's like we can't be friends. You know, like, that, I mean, that's, that might not be how we desire to live life. But I think if we look at patterns in our life, like, it, it might actually tend to be more true than we want it to be. Um, but I think one of the things that, that has been so great through understanding um, just Jewish context is, is how, like, those tensions are celebrated of, like, we got to a different answer, but, like, we both asked, like, the same. And, and the, way that, the way that they've communicated is, is it's possible for us to both be right. I was going to say that it doesn't always work in our marriage that we're both right. But in the context <laughs> of like discovery I'm and asking right. questions. Wait, what'd you say? I'm usually right. Anyway, continue. Yes, she is usually right. But the wonderful thing is, is I'm also right. So uh, 
Matt and I, and again, we're just using some examples that are familiar to us on the stage, but a rabbi friend of mine, we love to argue, like big arguments that to you might sound like contentious or troubling, but to us, we're trying to get to the heart of a matter. And at the end of the day, we can both be right and celebrate different answers. Now, that's challenging on some of the issues in Christian theology, like is there only one way to the Father? Unanimously, the answer to that scripturally and theologically is yes. But when we talk about some of the subsidiary issues, when we talk about some of the things that uh, surround that absolute truth in the center, we can come to different conclusions and celebrate that. Mm -hmm. And Isaac, I, I love how... I feel like that's a lesson our society could learn today, yeah, politically sure. <laughs> or whatever, is let's celebrate that we are at different places at the end of the day. I feel like that celebration of a diversity of understanding and opinion is not just something for the religious debate. I think it's something yeah. for the political debate. I think it's something for the way that we interact with each other as humans. Yeah, so, For sure. Jen, do you want to? Uh, no? Great. All right. Um, hey, I want to encourage you as we go through this, um, some of these, some of these moments and, and what you're gonna, what you're gonna hear. Um, I've, I've grown up in church my whole life and never had the, never had as much of a, uh, maybe opportunity or such a, such a blessing as getting to hear and, and learn so much as it has been over the last few months with Jen and Troy and with Matt, um, who again came, check out his message online, gatewaylife.com for us messages. But, um, uh, but just like throughout this series, so I want to encourage you, um, take notes however you can tonight. Um, and I feel even more confident saying that because I'm going to try to talk as little as possible. And what, what they're going to share tonight, um, again, ought to cause questions um, for you. And I think it's going to be imperative that you write those questions down because I think it's going to lead to some really sweet moments with the Lord in the coming days and weeks as you dig in and, and really try to sort through those questions. And just importantly to understand, like, we will never fully understand God on this side of eternity. And well, and I, can I add to that? Yeah. It's not just that we won't fully understand God on this side of eternity. When we enter into eternity, the reality of his mercies being new every morning will still continue to be still. true as long as we exist. So that's the awesome. depth of who God is is not just something that's uh, limited by our finite understanding in the now, but in the not yet, in the, in the forever future, we'll discover something about God every single day that will blow our minds. That's awesome. And that's something that I get excited about all yeah. the time. It's a reason to wake up, for sure. It's a reason to wake up and a reason to celebrate, for sure. So, um, all right, so hey, let's dig into some of these questions, and, and I understand some of us in this room may, may um, maybe you know the answer to a question, or maybe think you know the answer to one of these questions, and again, we're not trying to search for answers, but we're just trying to discuss the questions, but... Answers um, are good. <clears throat> answers are good. Um, but as we dig into this, you know, when we talk about Hebrew context of Scripture, the Hebrew Scriptures, right, because... Um, even getting into Old Testament, New Testament, there's some conversation that could be had with the labeling of it like that. Um, but let's dig into it a little bit. The Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, Tanakh, all of these words um, help, help us understand what, what, what is the, what's the Tanakh, what exactly is meant by the term Torah, oral sure. law, like sure. it's kind of... Well, in, 
has anyone, and I'm just looking for a, a show of hands, have you ever heard the phrase, the, the, the word Tanakh before? Anybody ever heard that? There's three or four people. Maybe there's 10, 12 people. Uh, Tanakh is an acronym. Do you guys know what an acronym is? The NCAA, that is an acronym. Uh, Tanakh, T-N-K, Torah, which means uh, uh, instruction, Nevaim, which means the prophets, and Ketuvim, which means the writings. So the Tanakh is the way that we refer to the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. It's not just that it's a testament of something that's old. Um, it's that it is the collection of writings that provide godly instruction, the word of the prophets, and the history, the writings and the history uh, uh, that make up the first 80% of the Bible. I, I don't know if you all are aware of if you have a Bible. Does anybody have a Bible with you today? A book that's actually with you? If you look at it, the first 75 to 80% is what we refer to as the Old Testament. I think that there's something interesting in the psychology of referring to 80% of the Bible as something old. So we talk about the Hebrew scriptures because it was written in Hebrew, or you could call it the Tanakh, that is the Torah, which Moses wrote down, the sayings and the story of the prophets, and then the Ketuvim, the historical writings, Psalms, Proverbs, First and Second Chronicles, uh, things like that. So it's a continuous story that has the experience of divine revelation. Oh, this I could go really far here. So you should, you Jen, should. Jen, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to help me kind of like tone him down in. a little bit if we can start going. <laughs> Wait, I have to tell you, the very first time I met Troy on our first date. Sorry, this is a really oh, this important. Is, actually, it's fantastic. Um, I we sat down to coffee for this was our first date, and I beat him to the punch. I didn't know I was, was it, doing it. Was it even a date at that point? No, anyway, I'm not sure. We, question for a different day. Uh, <laughs> save that question for time with the Lord later. I said. The simple question, tell me about yourself. I sat there for three hours and did not speak a word because this gentleman started with his great-grandparents. But here's the thing. I actually meditated on the way to the coffee shop to say, I got to ask her first. If she asks me first, we'll be there for three hours. I got to ask her first. And there may not be a second date. Who knows? Uh, Right. But... But here we are. Right. I mean, if he didn't scare you in three hours, then, I mean, that's a good sign. Well, right? actually, she went home to our mutual friends uh, who I lived in their basement at the time and said, he's, he's either really great or really crazy. <laughs> one of the Turns other. out he's Jury's both. still out. Both. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So anyway. So it's not Isaac either is, or. Yeah. Isaac is referring to the fact that I might occasionally need to be like, honey, you could stop. You could yeah, stop. Yeah, right. We could talk more uh, later. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Jen, okay, I think this would be a good question. I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts, kick it off a little bit. Um, but, but one of these other questions says, the Bible often, and we talk about it, the Bible often refers, um, says to the Jew first and then to the Greek, right? And uh, multiple times shares this idea of to the Jew first. And we've had the opportunity to talk a little bit about this um, as a staff and just understand more of um, what, how this translates to, to even now with us, um, but, um, but for those that, um, is there, so one of the, kind of the question, but you can kind of just take it however you um, kind of interpret it, but the question is, is there a modern day application for that of those that aren't Jewish? Kind of what does that mean 
And is that still yep. true? Okay, now? so here's my answer. First of all, I think to the Jew first is a statement of order and not of importance. So I don't think it means that Jews are more important. I think it's to the Jew first is an order, like an order thing. Jew first, then Gentiles. And the Bible talks about sense? in, I think it's 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that order makes way for beauty. Yes. That God does things in order because right. it shows the beauty of yep. him plan all of it. So. Yeah. Um, I have another thing that's maybe adjacent to this that I want to say when we talk about the chosenness of the Jewish people. Um, this is my favorite thing that I heard one time, and I have always, always remembered it. How many of you guys are familiar with the Lord of the Rings? That story? Okay, almost everybody. Nice. So I'm going to compare it to the hobbits and to Frodo in particular. Frodo was given a task. He was chosen for a task, right? To get the ring to the mountain. That was his goal. And that was his task that was going to like basically save all of Middle Earth. There was a chosenness for him, but he was so weak and he was so like, he was struggle, right? There was um, difficulty that he faced. He needed the help of everybody else in the whole Middle Earth to get his task done. So we could sit there and be sort of like bothered by, well, he was chosen for the special task. Or we could acknowledge like, yeah, he was chosen, but it was not pretty. Like there, there's, this is a story of weakness, right? A story of him needing so much support and help. So it's not a perfect analogy, but I do think that when we think about the chosenness of Israel, the chosenness of the Jewish people, God has something in mind for them to do for the sake of the whole world, but it's not because they're super special or super awesome. It's because he needed to pick somebody to accomplish his purpose on the earth. But the Bible is a story of the failings of the Jewish people and the weaknesses of the Jewish people. It's reading their mail. It's seeing the difficulty there. And so if we can choose as a church to not be offended or sort of like, you know, bothered by the chosenness or the firstness of the Jewish people and see that there's purpose in it, but that it's for the sake of everybody, for the entire body, then I think it helps us think correctly about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's so good. And I think, that like, literally reading the mail of the Jewish people through through the Hebrew scriptures, and I think one of the things that you see, and, and I love... Um, even what kind of what Preston said, I can't remember what, what message, but just kind of seeing that throughout like God's mercies on display and his continual pursuit and through, you know, as we, as we look, cause, cause it can bring up questions like, does this relate to me or is it just about the Jewish people or like, how does it, but I think one of the things Preston brought up is, is that it should, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this. So I'm going to have to find the quote and we'll, we'll post it. Um, but talk, just talking about when we see the way that God responds, acts, loves, and pursues the Jewish people, it should show us a depth of God's character that we that we long for and appreciate. And like, it should just show you how God acts. Right. Towards, he reveals his goodness right. through this story. The yeah. Bible is the story of this people right. and the way that God loves them. And that's not because he only loves them. It's because we can realize what's true about him. It's right. really a story about him. Right. right? Yeah. And that's and where we... But he's, his way he's telling it is through this group, of, this one yeah. family. And, that, and that's probably a little bit of us in, in kind of a Western Christianity culture reading ourselves into the text a little too much maybe. Um, and 
seeing and in turn seeing more of us than of God. And, um, you know, I think even in some of the things that, that we've kind of talked about is as we, we approach scripture, like even our, even our response to, again, just hearing some of these messages. And I would encourage, if you haven't listened to the, to the messages from the series, it's a great, that, that this series that we're in is going to be a great one to put on your yearly listen to list and just go back and refresh and, and learn again and ask more questions. Uh, because even just as, as, uh, you know, coming from a Western Christianity culture, like you see a lot of even insecurities and stuff pop up when, if it, uh, if reading that God loved and chose the Jewish people, like offends, like there's probably some deeper things that like, that, that God actually maybe wants to dig in with me about and just say, hey, like, I, you know, I, I love you. I love you too. Like, and, and I remember Preston told me, because um, we were talking about having, having a second kid and one of the things Preston brought up is having a second kid doesn't mean you love the first one any less or that you love a second one anymore. Like it can be, it can be a- You just a, love a, a them both. differently. You just, it's just different. And they were first, but they were, they were second. And I love them, you know, and they're, they're still my, they're my kids. So anyways, do you have- Well, no, I think, you know, reading, reading the mail, if you will, like all the sins of the people of Israel are written in scripture. Like God put the weight of holy writ to tell all of our weaknesses and our brokenness and our failing. And, and Jen was saying about being chosen. Uh, I had a friend of mine who was in Hebrew school, and, and he said to the teacher, what are we chosen for? And the, pe- the teacher said, we're chosen to suffer. So I'm not sure what your experience is right. of interacting emotionally with the idea of chosenness, but I quote, Tuvia from Fiddler on the Roof. He said, couldn't you choose someone else for a while? So that's not necessarily a, a badge that we wear big. Um, in some ways, it makes us the scorn of all nations. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why Jerusalem will become a stumbling block for all the nations. And of all the things that happen at the, at the UN, like I, I think 90% of the things that the UN passes as resolutions are concerning condemning Israel. Like the political statistics are insane. So our chosenness from our perspective is not often something that we celebrate in our relationship to the world. It is something we celebrate behind closed doors within our families, that's to be sure. But Isaac, I was thinking it it, it isn't a matter of... of, uh, uh, of, of order for us to say to the Jewish people, uh, to the Jew first, which is from Romans 1.16, by the way. I think Pastor Robert uh, uh, in, in, in South Lake, Texas, who uh, Preston was under for, for most of his growing up years in the ministry, uh, uh, he's great on this phrase to the Jew first. Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of salvation to all who would believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's this reality for us woven into the gospel is the fact that part of what we're not ashamed of is that it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Part of the power of the gospel is that it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, why is it to the Jew first? And I think Preston, in a, in a side conversation once among some pastors here and my friend Rabbi Matt when he was in town, he said it's the idea that, that Israel had to be chosen because if 
someone showed up to Gentiles in the first century and said, I'm the Messiah, they would say, who is a Messiah? What does no that clue. have to do with anything? Right. I'm the son of God, the son of man. I am the God of Israel in the flesh. Who's the God of Israel? What are you talking about? Right. Like, in fact, that's what Pharaoh says to Moses when Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, hey, you got to let the people of Israel go because the God of Israel said that you have to. And he said, who's the God of Israel? I don't know who the God of Israel is. I don't know any idea what you're talking about. So when we get to the idea of first, it's order. It's also context. That's where we could, we could launch way into Jewish context from this idea of first. Why did he, that, that's an incident of history for sure. He came among the Jewish people first. What's the application for today? Part of your question, Isaac, I just want to say that's what our ministry does. Our ministry goes around the world sharing the gospel, and we start by targeting an area where we've heard that there are Jewish people. You know what? I think one out of 50 of the people that we serve in a medical campaign and then offer them the opportunity to pray are Jewish. But what attracted our attention to that area was the opportunity to minister to the Jewish people first. So it's just a very practical thing. And we can see it in, in Paul. And, and I'll stop and you can ask the next question. But we can see it in Paul. Paul says that he's going to the Gentiles in the first century. It's over and over in the book of Acts. He says, I'm going to the Gentiles. Where does he land to go to the Gentiles? Time after time, he lands at the synagogue to reach the Gentiles. Why? Because they are the, the Gentiles were gathered around the synagogue community as the God-fearers. They were hungry for the truth of the God of Israel, but he had to go to the synagogue because that was the location. Uh, so that's, again, an incident of history, but we can bring that into the modern day by saying, hey, uh, let's reach the community of Scottsdale. Where there's some Jewish people there, let's make sure they're included in our efforts and uh, we're going to get way more, statistically, way more non-Jewish people or Greeks. We just have to start with the Jewish context. That's a good, that's a good point. Wow, that's, I mean, that's, that's very, even, you know, even just both, both of those answers are very, like, enlightening and very, like, I think it's just, it's, that's practical. It's easy to say, like, okay, so I just... Part of just like being a follower of Christ is I just go like tell people and it might happen that one of them is Jewish. Nice. <laughs> like, I, like I could do that, you know. So that's awesome. Now, um, kind of take a little bit of a veer this way. Um, let's talk about the, the, the New Testament a little bit. Um, new, old, but we kind of already clarified that there's, there could be some better titles to these things. The apostolic writings the apostolic is the way we writings. refer to it in Great. our own community. Great. That's, that's easier to, or that's more appropriate to say, I guess. Um, so as we, as we talk about the apostolic writings and actually one of, one of the, one of the questions that came in just recently. Can I tell a joke? Go, absolutely. So the New Testament was written almost exclusively by Jewish people, except for Luke who was a doctor. And you know most doctors. I don't get your joke, honey. You don't get it? No. Are you serious? Yes, I'm sorry. 
Oh, Let no. me start over. When you have to <laughs> <laughs> this is not how jokes are supposed to go. <laughs> it's a Jewish context joke. Got it. So we'll get it so by the end of the course. Most cultists. doctors, that's the joke. Most doctors are Jewish. That's most the doctors joke. are you Jewish. Know, Got it. Yeah. Luke was a doctor who's the only Gentile, suspected Gentile, that authored a book of the New Testament. And you know, most doctors. That was most doctors, most doctors are, are Jewish. Got it. That was three okay. times that I tried to yeah. explain that and three times that it didn't yeah. work. Yeah. Just, yeah. So moving on. Yeah, please. Thank you. <laughs> uh, no, so the app is... <laughs> The apostolic writings. Now, one of the questions that came in, um, and I'm, I'm going to just read it um, as it was written. Uh, so it uh, actually, hold on, let me, let me find it here. It's, it's talking about just the, the, the writings and just the, um, uh, shoot, where did it go? It, uh, so it goes, our English translations of the Bible suck compared to the original language. So they, they stink is kind of the... the um, Seems to be the, the theme. Now, I like uh, the asker of this question already. <laughs> they, seems like the, the English translations, let's just say, lack a little bit. Some of them lack some clarity, context, or maybe reality in the way that the traditional writings were written. But it, it, it kind of brings us to, the, to the, uh, the question that I think you're, you're, you're thinking of is, when we approach the, the New Testament, now when I was in Bible college, they're like, hey, you've got to take Greek because like, the whole New Testament is Greek, and looking back at, like, there's, there seems to be this understanding that it was somehow better than the other ones, and so that's why I need to take Greek. If I was going to take Greek or Hebrew, well, New Testament is written in Greek, so you got to take that, but again, interesting, written in Greek, but all Hebrew context and Jewish people, so where, how do, where do we begin reading as we read it? Do we read it Hebrew? Do we understand there's a Hebrew context? Do we Try to find a Hebrew translation of the New Testament. Like, how do we read it? And I think you know where I'm going. Yeah, I, there actually are a couple Hebrew translations of the New Testament in the last 100 years, uh, maybe the last 150 years. Um, Hebrew scholars got into the Greek and translated straight from Greek to Hebrew instead of through English, which is a great project. Um, but I think the question that you're after is not actually the language, Isaac. Is that yeah. true? You're yeah, not yeah, really yeah. after the language. Right. It's, so there's a scholar named Dan Gruber, which I won't bore you too much with, but he talks about the fact that uh, uh, a lot of the phrases, a lot of the concepts in the New Testament are actually written in what he's termed a Jewish Greek. In other words, they take... Uh, uh, tactical or functional words in the Greek language and try to communicate Hebrew idioms. Does any, everyone know what an idiom is? Uh, it's like big like an elephant is, a, is, a, is an idiom or a word picture. So the, the writers of the New Testament are trying to communicate Hebrew ideas in Greek words. And so if Modern translators, I'd say even translators maybe who were translating into Latin from Greek at one time, uh, they're dealing with concepts that are not rooted in Hebrew idioms and trying to translate the Greek of the New Testament, which presents a number of challenges. And the primary challenge is this idea of context. I'll just, I thought of this story. When I... Though I was raised in a Messianic Jewish environment, I have a testimony. Maybe some of you have a testimony of walking away from the Lord and trying to work out your own faith. One of the things that drew me back, and this might be 
indication of how much of a nerd I am, was reading John's gospel with center column notes. Center column notes are where they have a superscript of like an A or a B, and then you go to the center column. And I realized in reading the first three chapters of John that almost all the center column notes on the words in red were quotes from the Torah. A concept from the Torah was being reiterated in the words of Jesus, and I realized that I couldn't understand the words of Jesus without going back to the Torah. The Psalms are quoted a lot. Isaiah is quoted a lot by the New Testament writers. But I realized that Jesus' words in, the vac- in a vacuum separated from the Hebrew concepts or ideas, though written in Greek, by the writers of the New Testament, which was a strategic decision in their day. That's why most things in the world today are translated into English, because you want as many readers of it as possible. So Greek in the first century was the universal language the way that English is in most of the world today. Uh, And so they're trying to capture these ideas from the Hebrew scriptures in Greek, Though it was written in Hebrew, so they lean into the Septuagint text quite a lot, which is another story of history and academics. Uh, But I think that gives us the idea, Isaac, of why are some translations uh, uh, seem to be so far afield of the Jewish roots of the faith. It's because people are dealing with the technicalities of Greek without considering it in the context of the imagery from the Hebrew scriptures. And we talked about a little bit throughout some of the, some of the series, maybe not so much in the series because it's kind of heady, but just even how some of that has led us to kind of separate the Jewishness of Jesus from the person of Jesus and kind of like almost assume he's just a guy and not, he's not Jewish. He's not like some of the translations in the way that we've read have, have maybe drawn us away, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to forgetting and missing how, how much this matters well, in, in his context. And I think that's a knife that cuts in both directions. Like Rabbi Matt said this idea that uh, presenting Jesus as, a, as another god of a different religion creates a, like Jewish people are like, what are, this doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about. I don't even understand what you're saying. Uh, I know my friend who's a believer now Uh, He's actually a a different rabbi. He said when he was growing up, he thought Jesus Christ was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ and that he probably lived in the Vatican. Like that was his whole, and that's a Jewish guy that thought that because of. And that's a real experience of like the way I interpreted this story being told to me. Yeah. For sure. And his his point, when he finally was confronted with the gospel, he thought, well, I better read the New Testament. And his biggest shock was that Jesus and all of his disciples were Jewish. Like, that never got on the radar for him as a Jewish person. So, it's a knife that cuts in both directions, I think. Yeah, and and Matt Matt also said a quote that was like, it was really awesome when he said it, and like, hit me for sure. He said, Christianity is basically Judaism for Gentiles. And so, just, I mean, that's, that's a full statement in and of itself to dive into, but again, you'll have to watch his message to get more of the context of that. But um, Jen, just to, to kind of let Troy take a break, drink, drink some water if he needs to, but um, uh, Jen, obviously, you are Jewish, and so I, I'm, I'm interested just to, to hear your perspective, because you talked a little bit about just growing up in, a, in 
Christian church and then understanding more of Jewish context and then going to scripture. How does understanding the Jewish context of, of scripture and Jesus and who he is like bring to life the scriptures themselves. So many of us like, I mean, I, I hope if we're in this room, our desire is to know God more, um, to get to know him, um, to, to get to know who he's made us to be as a result of seeing him and finding him. And, um, and so understanding scripture and all of that, how does understanding this, why is it so important um, to understand more of Jesus and, and scripture. Well, I have a couple things to say, but the first is that I've gotten to the point where I feel like Jesus doesn't even make sense without the, without the Jewish context. I remember I was working at a youth group in Colorado years ago, and um, one of the high school seniors who was like top of our leadership class and doing all these things, he came to me and he sat in my office and he said, you know, Jesus is great. I love him. I'm giving my life to him. But everyone talks about his blood. What's the deal with the blood? Like, why is that a big deal? And I realized that our, like, top-level high school senior leadership guy did not understand anything about the sacrificial system, didn't understand that blood mattered and blood was something that covered sin. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what have we done? We have done him a disservice by not giving this context of like, Jesus doesn't make sense. A Messiah doesn't make sense unless you understand the story of Israel. Blood doesn't make sense. What he did and what he's doing doesn't make sense without the first half of the story. Now, I will say that so many of us have become believers even while we don't understand that. The Holy Spirit is so good, and he can reveal himself to us without that missing on-ramp. But as you be grow in maturity as a believer, the thing that makes it really fully like take shape is the context of the Hebrew scriptures. And the other thing I wanted to say that I think sort of will segue with what Troy was sharing and also just be a bit of my story is I grew up in the church and my parents divorced when I was young. My dad's Jewish and my mom's not. So I grew up with my mom and very Christian mega church world and learned at a young age uh, in my kids' church class that you're supposed to witness to people who aren't believers in Jesus. So I called up my dad two states away, my Jewish dad, and I said, hey, dad, where are you going to go when you die? Do you know where you're going to go when you die? Or here's Romans Road. I, w I tried to witness to my dad with the little tools that they gave me in Sunday school, which are wonderful tools. But he, you know, lovingly turned to his six-year-old daughter and said, Honey, that's so sweet, and I really appreciate it, but I'm a Jewish man, and to become a Christian, I'd have to stop being a Jewish man, and it's too important to me that I'm Jewish, and so I can never believe what you're asking me to believe because I can't turn away from my Jewishness, and my five-year-old Jen turned into 15-year-old Jen and 25-year-old Jen who still had that core message that my dad would never become a believer because it would require him to stop being Jewish, and it wasn't... That's part of why when I met Troy and I was like, wait, Jewish and Jesus together, I, hold on, I need to figure this out. Because my, it was my heart cry for 20 years praying for my dad and not having the understanding to say, oh, no, no, you don't have to stop being Jewish. This actually is a Jewish concept. This is like the ultimate pinnacle for you. This is not a turning away of who you are. This is becoming more fully who you are. And I didn't have that understanding to talk to him about that. And in the Jewish psyche, for sure, 
Christianity and Jesus, those two things are almost akin to like curse words, almost. Like this is, there's so much damage that's been done to Jewish people in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christianity. Um, And it's just kind of built into the Jewish psyche. My uncle tells, he's not a believer. Um, He's probably 70 years old and he talks about He's super liberal, like he'll do anything, go anywhere, whatever. But he tells stories about walking down the street when he was touring New York City, and it was built into his brain that he had to cross the street, walk a block, and cross back so that he wouldn't cross under the shadow of a church. Not even go in the church, but cross under the shadow of a church because the church doesn't like you. The church is out to hurt you. The church is going to going to treat you horribly. And that's what he believes. And so he didn't even want to walk under the shadow of the church. And that's just part of who he is. That's how he's lived 70 years of his life because of this misunderstanding of the Jewishness of Jesus. And that goes to your point where you you mentioned that in in a lot of ways, in, in some cases, again, whether, you know, in many cases unintentionally, but Jesus has been presented to the Jews as a different God of a different people, a different a whole different person than the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Right. And, and I'll let Troy expound on this because he's the Bible scholar of the two of us. But the Bible says, I mean, part of this is because some things have been mishandled historically. But part of it is actually, I believe, the Bible says that the Jews have been blinded for a time um, so that the gospel can go, since the Jewish people didn't understand it or accept it as a whole, then it went out to the nations and the gospel is going all around the world to every nation and making its way back to Israel. But that is possible because of this blindness and this misunderstanding that's happening with the Jewish people. And so what's the scripture? It says Romans 11. 11. You should talk. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing great. Um, It it says if, if the blindness of the Jews is what? You have to help me. It's Romans 11, I think it's 15, but uh, it, if, the, if their rejection is riches for the world, that is, if Jewish people's rejection of the gospel is the riches of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Life wow. from the dead. So that's what we are contending that's for. That's powerful. Is for the nations to understand who Jesus is, but also for Jewish people to understand who he is, because that is life from the dead. Right. And Romans 11.25 closes that loop into, uh, uh, if the blindness for Israel in the fullness of the Gentiles, so all Israel will be saved. So there's this partnership. Oh man, that's a whole nother thing that we haven't touched really at all. But there's this, this partnership. If, if the gospel went first to the Jewish people and they collectively through their leadership said no, then Paul became a missionary to the Gentiles. He actually said he was a prisoner of the Gentiles for their fullness in order that some of his people might be saved. And the vision that he had for the end of the age is that the fullness of the Gentiles would provoke Israel to an entirety of salvation, and then the end would come. It's a fantastic... That's, that's awesome. I mean, there's just... I just touched and eschatology that, that speaks a little too. bit to even the... The, the chosenness of it and just like when we when we like get frustrated or even try to argue little things it's 
understanding there is so much to this and understanding the beautiful part that we all play in the, in the story that is, that is Jesus to the world. So if, if the goal of our world in the Messiah, in Jesus, is that Jew and Gentile would work together to see the, the, the kingdom of Jesus made literal on the earth. If you were a strategic thinker and you wanted to prevent that, and you knew the scripture inside and out, and your, your created name was Lucifer, what would you do to prevent that moment from coming to pass. I think you would make sure that there's this clear boundary between Jews and Gentiles and a clear boundary between Judaism and Christianity that Jesus, in fact, breaks down the middle wall of partition so that we can all enter into the fullness of our destiny in him. And all of history, the history between Jews and Christians is this forced narrative that you can't be both. You can only be one or the other. And I'm just, we're sitting on the stage tonight to say both to you and to the heavenly atmosphere that that is a lie. And we will be both together, no matter the history of the Holocaust, the history of the Inquisition, the history of bad Jewish theology, and the history of bad Christian theology. We're going to fight against all of that and the powers and principalities of darkness and rulers in high places and say, no, 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 we're going to be both. That's awesome. That's so good. That's so good. And, and just like thinking of how just even just with your uncle, of this, this idea that I have to deny who I am. And I think it brings up a question just to kind of, again, clarify, because I think we all kind of represent different backgrounds and, and understandings of Scripture and um, how long we've even, you know, followed Jesus and, and all of that. Just explain a little bit just about, like, when we say, like, Jewish, because Jewish is, you know, like, obviously Israel, like it could be Jewish, but like Judaism and like kind of explain kind of what this all is a little bit so that like when we, we kind of understand what we're talking about, we say Jewish, like culture, ethnicity, religion, like how does yes. all of this, how do we distinguish <laughs> it's it? It's all of it, right? It's all. This is probably, someone could probably think of a different example, but I think the only one I can think of where when you say one word, it could mean so many different things. A Jewish person could be like Jewish by blood could be Jewish by belief. I mean, Jewish by blood is kind of a requirement um, to meet that qualification of Jewish, but then Jewish uh, beliefs, religion, all of that isn't, you can say Jewish and mean we're talking religion. I, my cousin and his wife got married by an atheist rabbi. So I don't know how that works exactly, but you don't necessarily have to believe something to be considered Jewish. He would not say the blessings at the wedding because it had the name God in it. So we had to ask her uncle to say the blessings so that the marriage could be complete by the atheist rabbi. Yep, there's, well, and it's interesting because there's Buddhists. Like, what are we doing? Like, at yeah. some point, I'm like, this, wouldn't this be easier if he just did it? Like, I don't <laughs> understand. Like, you, can, you mean you can lead us all the way here, but at the end, right. you can't, like, right, seal right, this right, thing. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's so interesting because there's Buddhist Jews, there's atheist Jews, there's, I mean, you name it. Everything, it's, it's okay to be Jewish and believe kind of whatever you want, if you want, except for believing in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, no longer Jewish. Your family will mourn your death. You are not considered 
Jewish any longer the minute that you believe in Jesus, but any of these other things are fine. So you can really see the spiritual warfare that's going on around that's this That's not topic. necessarily true is what you're saying. No, but, it's not but true. But that's the, that's the yeah, assumption like, well, or yeah. the belief. It's or, the narrative in the yeah, Jewish the community, although that's changed in the last 50 years. It's also the narrative in the Christian community, although that too has changed in the last 100, I'd say 150 years. Um, you know, the Inquisition, I don't know if you guys know this as an incident of history, but the Inquisition was the Catholic Church in Spain and in Portugal who were forcing Jewish people to converse to Christianity and what they were inquiring, what they were investigating or inquisiting was whether or not those Jewish people that were forced at the point of death or social ostracization, they were forced to convert and then the church was worried that they continued to practice Judaism in secret. So the whole thing that they were investigating is whether or not Jews really stopped being Jews when they were forced to convert to Christianity. Like the impact of that on the psychology of a people is uh, significant. And it wasn't the Christians that, that were doing it. They were doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. Like the impact of that on the people. And, and part of the conversion ceremony until, I don't know when the practice ended, but certainly in the Middle Ages, Jewish people that found a relationship with Jesus, if they wanted to join the organized religion called the church, they had to eat a ham sandwich to prove it. So in order to believe in Jesus as the bringer of the law, they were forced to break the law that Jesus appeared to them and told them to keep. Do you see how complex the issue is theologically yeah. and soteriologically and ecclesiologically? I mean, it's huge, For the implications sure. here. And you could just see some of the, the ways, like you said, if, if you were going to try to stop this, this whole thing, what would you do? Brilliant. Find every way to create a divide as much as possible so that... And a lot of it's by taking Scripture out of context. Right. Jesus' yeah, yeah. first test before he was launched into ministry was a face-to-face -face encounter with the enemy when the enemy was quoting scripture to him out of context. Wow. Like, that's so incredible to think about how well the enemy knows scripture. He's been studying this thing for 6,000 years, trying to figure out how to stop his reign on the earth from, uh, uh, from coming to an end. Like it says in Revelation that he knows that his time is at an end, so he's just trying to extend it. He's trying to make it last a little longer. And I don't know if there's any academics in, in the room or maybe listening online, but there's also a cosmology built into what we're saying. The, the eternal struggle is between Jesus and Lucifer over who owns the planet. Like Lucifer thought, hey... I want my own kingdom. He looked at Yeshua in heaven and he said, I can't beat him. And then he looked at Adam and said, oh, I'll trick him but and I I'll can... have a kingdom on the earth for a little while. Wow. Wow. Ah! Yeah, there's, yeah, we could, <laughs> I want to ask a bunch of questions there, but um, let's, just, let's just go to our understanding of scripture and just talk a little bit about how we read scripture and and obviously there's a, um, recently we've been in a series here, uh, you know, digging into the book of Jonah and seeing um, how this, this book has been in, in many ways kind of like 
you know, communicated, at least to me, in, in my, like seen, it's been communicated like a fairy tale forever. And just understanding that really even the book of Jonah is, uh, I, if, I, if I remember correctly, like Jonah's only talked about like 18 times. The fish is only mentioned three times. The great city is only mentioned nine times. But God and his character are mentioned 37 times in 47 scriptures. And it's like, okay, so what's Jonah about? That was some awesome pastor statistics like, right it's, there. I well, I've just read it. We've been in series. I, I, it's on my phone. So um, That was no, an just, awesome use of Google. <laughs> right. But just as we, as we dig into scripture, just how do we, how do we read this? How, how do we make sure that we aren't falling into that? And I know there's a, there's a, um, uh, if, I, if I say this correctly, a, a rabbinic way of reading scripture and just studying scripture. And, um, but but if, the, if one of the ways that the enemy creates this divide among people, but especially among, you know, Gentile Christians and, and, and Jewish believers of, and the Jewish people is taking scripture out of context, how do we, how ought we like read the scripture and study and and not read ourselves too much into this, but like how do we make sure that we're reading it appropriately? What are some of the ways that maybe Hebrew context and, and rabbinic they kind of go through this? Well, we'll get into a technical thing in just a minute. Um, how do we exegete or how do we interpret the scripture? There's a four part rabbinic way that. I know it's part of what I want to give as an answer here. But let me say first, that's why context is so important. We're not, we're not if, I, if I might shoot my own self in the foot, I'm not interested in Jewish context first. I'm interested in historical context. And the reality is, is that the historical context is Jewish. So I just want to put the first thing first there. Whenever we're looking at Scripture, we have to realize what did it mean when the author said it in their historical context to the audience that they were writing to? Like, if you, if you just start there, then I think that that's a win for understanding Scripture. Um, you know, Jonah and the, and the, and the Ninevites. Let me, just for context, why did Jonah say no to God? Because Nineveh was Israel's enemy. And Jonah didn't want them to hear the message of repentance because he knew that God was good and if if they repented God would give mercy to them but Jonah didn't want mercy to be poured out on the Ninevites because the Ninevites were the seat of the most recent attacks against the people of Israel that's why he said no to God. He wasn't just being rebellious. I don't have rebellious. to preach the next message now because you just totally oh, went right sorry, to Oh, sorry, bro. No, we're great. Oh, <laughs> we're great. sorry. No, but I think it's great. Like in, 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 in Jonah 4, it's like he's like a toddler who's like, see, this is why I didn't want to do this, Dad. Right. You know? Like, right. Because you're, you're too nice. Right. And you're going to keep giving them time after time. And, right. and I don't think they deserve that. I don't want you to give them time after time should. because and, I want yeah. my family to win. I don't want right. their family to win, right. which is super normal. Like that's all of us. I was reading Jonah one time because that's the tradition on Yom Kippur. You read Jonah. And I was reading Jonah, and the Lord said to me, you're like Jonah. Jonah was so mad about a plant. And God said, but 120,000 people could die, and it doesn't move your heart at all? And the Lord said to me, that's how you are towards the Gentiles. You would much rather see Israel saved and you ignore the billions of other people on the, world, uh, on the earth. And I just laid on the floor and cried for like three hours. So, yeah. 
again, the point of that was historical context. So there's four parts to a rabbinic exegetical system called Pardes. Pardes is like the Tanakh, an acronym. P-R-D-S. Peshat. The simple meaning of the text. What is the simple, literal, right in historical context, what is the literal meaning of the text? And then it's R. Remez. What are the hints in the text? What are the allegorical things that are also being said about God's nature? What are the allegorical things that are being said about how God interacts with his people? And then the next one is D, uh, derash or derasha. Uh, how do we, do we see the occurrence of this idea or this word in context anywhere else in scripture? That's where you get the idea of a word study. If you've ever done a word study with your concordance, that is a derasha or a drash approach to exegeting the scripture. You see where it says it in, in something from the, the Hebrew scriptures. You see where that idea or concept is repeated in the New Testament. And you go, oh, what do these two things have in common? That's the derasha. And usually when pastors or rabbis are sharing a sermon, they're using a derasha technique. They are looking at where this word appears and uh, like you use Google for the statistics in Jonah, I use Bible Gateway to figure out where those words appear, and then I'm looking for the thread in common. That's the derasha or a midrash teaching where you're looking at all of the places that a word or an idea or a phrase occurs. And then the last is the idea of sof or sod, uh, the mystery. What's the secret meaning? And I don't mean that in a, like, new age or, or Gnostic way. I mean, what else by divine revelation or insight, if I meditate on this scripture, will be alive to me right now? In some parts of the charismatic church, that's the idea of a rhema word, a word that's alive right now. The rabbis call that uh, uh, sod or sof, the, the ending, the completion. And I think, I think John's writings for sure have sowed a sowed or a mystical element to them everywhere you turn. Uh, some of the things that John says in John 1, for instance, is absolutely a revelatory experience of the, of the Genesis 1 uh, 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 paradigm. You know, in the beginning was the word, which I, I referred to that in the message that I did here because I think it's so fantastic and John's having a sowed experience. So yeah. that's just a simple meaning of the text. What are the allegorical implications? Um, where does this word or idea appear elsewhere? And is there anything active or present in what yeah. God's showing us about the scripture as we're reading it? Yeah, and, and in that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but every layer of that should always further highlight the historical it should always come back to the literal nothing as i go further down this line will ever contradict the literal meaning because that and that's where we begin that's where Correct. we ought to always begin. so if god showed me something about a text that was violating what the text actually meant it wasn't god that was showing me it and I'm using myself as an example, but I think that's true for any of us who are searching out the word and we get this brand new idea. If it matches scripture, hey, let's have a conversation about it. If yeah. it doesn't match the original intent of the writer, oh, we might have more of an argument than a conversation. Right. Yeah. That's good.
A um, couple more. I think I have three kind of three kind of questions I'd love to hit, and it's got a little bit, couple minutes left here. But, um, and I know that all three of these questions are probably not ones I should have saved for like five minutes left or whatever. But let's let's do what we can, um, and and um, you know, obviously let's not rush it. But Jen, you gave a beautiful um, answer to this question at our staff chapel, and I think we've already hit on it a little bit, um, but the, the question that, that I think would be great for all of us to, to hear and understand, and even just hear once again, maybe if we've hit it already, um, is, is when it comes to the Jews accepting Jesus as the Messiah, um, just even maybe clarifying a little bit as we kind of get into these, why, why don't many Jews accept Jesus as the Messiah, and you had given a little bit of an answer, and so I'll kind of steer just a little bit. Um, she kind of talked a little bit about that already tonight, but when we were in staff chapel, you you mentioned a little bit about some of the prophecies, and just even understanding how not all of them have yet, and so just kind of yeah. help us understand why, why don't they, why don't some of them Yeah, I Jesus? think what, what you're touching on is that there's an expectation in the Jewish mind, an expectation for Messiah, there are Jews who go in Jerusalem to the Wailing Wall and they pray and they sing and they dance and they beg for the Messiah to come. And every like committed Jewish person is waiting for the Messiah. And they have been given in the Hebrew writings some prophecies about what that's going to look like. And if you hear someone say, well, Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies, it's not quite accurate because he didn't fill all of them yet. There are, he will, and that's what we're expecting in his second coming. But in his first coming, he showed up on the scene as a suffering servant and Jewish people are waiting for a king, a conquering king, someone who's going to set them free from their oppressors. And that's not what Jesus did and they thought on Palm Sunday as he's riding up into Jerusalem oh the king okay yes he's gonna ride in he's gonna take over it's gonna we're gonna be set free from this horrible thing and then that didn't happen that week and so those same people were able to say oh wait we were wrong never mind let's crucify him and so they they didn't see him do what they expected. This is a good reminder for me when I think about his second coming, and I have some expectations for that. I think I know what it's going to look like, but I have to remember that Jesus' first time around didn't look how people were expecting. He was born in a yucky old stable and like all these things that are really not what they were expecting to see. And so I think that's part of it is that for so many Jewish people, they would be like, He's the Messiah, but he didn't do all the promised stuff. And so, no, he can't be it. Um, so I think that's probably what you're referring to, the expectation that to just some straightforward thinking is like, well, he didn't fulfill every single prophecy, and we would say yet. And then also I think part of the reason that Jewish people have, a trouble, have trouble believing is because of the things that have been done to them in the name of Jesus, which we've talked about. Um, and then also I think the blinders that are on there really ultimately spiritual. Go ahead. The idea of blinders. I, I don't know if you can catch Paul's argument in Romans 9, 10, and 11, but he's saying blindness in part has been caused by God that Israel wouldn't see yet so the Gentiles would be blessed. 
Like, what? The sovereignty of God is a huge issue, and I'm totally a free will guy, but the sovereignty of God is at work that all the nations would come to the fullness of the knowledge of God in the Messiah Jesus, and then bring that gift back to the Jewish people so that we can enter into Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies related to bringing peace to, on earth and the fullness of Israel among the fullness of the, of the nations. He's going to bring all of that with us entering in together Jew and Gentile as equal partnership in an equal partnership it's going to be a beautiful thing um, and, and I, I think that Jesus did fulfill all the prophecies related to the suffering servant but he hasn't fulfilled all the prophecies related to a victorious king and, and that was the expectation. I mean, the, the disciples themselves were like, oh, we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The road to Emmaus experience that Luke 24 records for us. It, but it's, it, it, you realize that Paul writing his letters, he's working out the theology of why the Messiah had to suffer first. The whole concept of a second coming is the Christian response to the Jewish expectation for a, for a victorious Messiah who will come and bring peace on earth. Like, we have a dual coming approach to that issue scripturally. The Jewish people don't have that approach. The Jewish people's approach is, no, no, no. We're going to take the bigger balance of the prophecies related to the son of David bringing peace on earth and freeing us from our oppressors. That's what we're going to lean into in our expectation of the Messiah. And guess what? When he comes again, Zechariah 12 says they're going to look on him who they've pierced and they will weep for, uh, uh, for the, as if he was their firstborn son who died. And then there'll be a grace and supplication poured out on the people of Israel. Like, it, it, it's amazing how synchronistic it is, but you have to see through lots of layers of history and context and interpretation. That's really good. Um, really quick, kind of hitting a little bit on that same vein, there's, um, you know, one of the questions that, that came in that we kind of talked about is, or that we um, kind of talked a little bit about ahead of time is, is um, just this idea of sacrifices. And um, the, so the question is, if the Jews don't provide animal sacrifices for atonement anymore, how are they, how are, how are they forgiven? And is there a special way, is there some special way that, that the Jews are saved separate from believing in Jesus as a result of that? Uh, and the answer to the second part of the question is an emphatic no. There's only one way to the Father. It's through the Son. Jesus says it repeatedly. There's only one God of Israel that appeared throughout the sweep of Scripture. John and the disciples of the first century, the apostles, tell us that Jesus is the personification of that. It's the, it's the same God. The issue is whether or not he was incarnate. There's only one way of salvation for all people, emphatically. So how do Jewish people deal with the fact that there's no blood sacrifices in a temple or at a tabernacle in the modern age? And the answer is prayer. Prayer becomes sacrifice. Prayer becomes the way that God forgives sins, which is not unlike our own theology a little bit after being activated by the blood of Yeshua, by the blood of Jesus that he carried into the heavenly holy of holies. So the framework there, Isaac, I'm trying to make it as short as possible, is prayer 
is the way that Jewish people believe that God forgives sin. They repent regularly. It's actually part of the daily prayer cycle. And we pray for forgiveness of our sins at the Yom Kippur through a, an extended prayer service. So that's the answer also, to your question. It's also a part of our, the way Jesus instructs us even to pray in the apostolic scriptures of like, hey, like when you pray, like, Lord, forgive me. You know, just this understanding of, oh, I've missed it. I'm not God. You are. I need you today, you and, know. And Jen was talking so it's about. it's not like this crazy different. No, yeah. it's not. Jen was talking about the Orthodox in Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall. Like they're saying, they're crying out in repentance. Like God's so drawn to their hearts. Yeah. But at the end of their life, at the end of the age, they're going to have to come face to face with who Jesus is. And that's an inescapable issue for everyone, Jew and Gentile. It's true for a pagan or a hedonist or someone who doesn't believe, an atheist who doesn't believe in God at all. We all have to come to grips with that. But the, the interesting thing is that the Jewish people, we pray every day for God to forgive us of our sins. And it's not activated in the confession of Yeshua. But it's so close. Like, it's so close, it's so beautiful, it's so amazing, it's so heartfelt. Uh, you know, Paul says that uh, I realized I had a form of godliness but without power. Yeah. So it's a form of repentance without power to actually activate that. And, and wow, I mean, the realities are intense. Yeah, as you can see, obviously each of these can be a conversation in and of themselves. Um, but kind of talking through that, there, there are obviously some things throughout Scripture that, that, that the Hebrew Scriptures, you know, to the Jewish people, hey, continue to, continue to do these things, right? Um, and I, I think, so the question kind of to kind of maybe conclude our talk for tonight, is, like, what do we do with, like, like, Sabbath, Shabbat, like, these traditions that are very much Hebraic and, and Jewish in context and, and Obviously, you know, getting to kind of know your family a little bit. We got to do a Shabbat dinner as a staff. Um, and it's something even as a staff that we're going to be doing a little bit more regularly. Um, you know, Pre Pastor Preston spoke on the idea, the, the, the concept of a, of a Sabbath and how important it is just to life. And, and Jesus says, hey, like, you, you kind of need this, you know. Um, but obviously, th there's this, how do we honor these traditions um, and that, are, that are very much ingrained in, in your family and, and even just as, as someone who is Jewish, but yet not at the same time feel like I need to, like, become Jewish? Do you know, does, does my question kind of make sense? Like, how do I, how do I navigate, like, you know, even in there is, like, is Sabbath Sunday, Saturday, Monday, at nighttime? You know, like, what, like but what do, what do I do? How do we right. like, approach life and these traditions and yet not... How do we honor them and honor history but not at the same time feel like I need to, again, read myself into it and become right. it? I think that, that so many of the things that God commanded his people to do are for Jewish people. They're not for everybody. Not everybody has to become Jewish. Not everybody has to do every single little thing just that way. The Jewish people were told to do this for all generations. And so... And so often, I, I do need to say this, so often I have Christians come to me and be like, man, you got to do all that stuff? 
And like, as if I'm under this heavy burden of having to like, but I thought the law is gone. And, but you got to understand in my mind and in a Jewish mind, this isn't a have to, this is a get to like, what I get to. That's a great way to just approach everything that is this relationship with Jesus. If I might just like interject that. Yeah, I think, and I think that's the, the shift that you have to make as you're reading the word. Now you don't. If you want to do your Sabbath on Saturday, that's what we do Friday night at sundown to Saturday night at sundown. That's built into, like, the Jewish rhythm. You don't have to do that, though, if you want to do it on Sunday. If your work schedule means that Wednesday is your day, then great. I think that dialing way into the core basic of this is a weekly rhythm of rest, that's what matters, and that's the win for you. That's the heart behind it. And I think so many things, so many beautiful things are available if you dive into Passover or if you dive into some of these holidays and feasts that are commanded by the Lord. But it's not this heavy handed like you must. It's so much like here's a gift. Do you want it? Do you want to unwrap it? Do you want to look at it? And I think if that's what I always, this is where I go in all these conversations with people that I have one on one is this like, sort of people are reactive, like, I don't want someone telling me what I have to do. And so if we can shift that heart, if we can just say, where's the gem in this? Where's, where can I mine for the, mine for the gold? Then there's so much richness available in all of these rhythms, the, the annual rhythms, the weekly rhythms, all of them are so great. You don't have to, and we're not up here to tell you, you must, you have to act like us. You have to do our stuff. We're here to say, there's some good stuff in here. Feel free to ask us, but dig in, figure it out, do some study because there's stuff that will bless you and enrich your life. That was great, babe. Really, that was awesome. That was awesome. Um, I, I think if if we look at Sabbath, or really if we look at the commandments of Scripture, uh, and I think Preston did a good job with this this past week. You should go listen to it. But the idea that there are some things in the Torah that are moral, they're moral absolutes. Killing, adultery are moral absolutes. Stealing, lying, coveting, caring for your parents, not taking the Lord's name in vain, not worshiping idols, those are moral issues. Sabbath is a moral issue. Like it's moral for the goodness of mankind, God gave us the Sabbath. Now the question is, We know what day of the week the Sabbath is. It's really clear on the seventh day. But what about Gentiles worldwide who believe in Jesus? I I don't think the seventh day is part of that morality. I think it's one day in seven that's part of the morality. For us, it's it's not just moral. It also has ritual attached to it. Part of the law is ritual law. So there's a lot of ritual laws for us. We have to do this at this time of year. We have to do this this day of the week. There are, there are ritual laws. Not bad. The only time that ritual law becomes bad is if it starts to supersede moral law. That, this is a huge concept in the way that, that halakha or applying the law to our daily lives. This concept is that the preservation of life is the highest moral value. So if there's a law related to the Sabbath, you know, there are lots of Jewish medical professionals that are working in ERs on the Sabbath. How do they deal with that ritually? They deal with that because the preservation of life is the highest value. 
crazy. So they can then get an exception. It's like Jesus talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees about circumcising on the Sabbath. Circumcision, making a cut on the Sabbath is, 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 is a violation unless it's for entering someone into the covenant. So there's, there's concepts here that I'm trying to, to bullet point really fast. Uh, but the idea of morality, that's the issue. Uh, and when it comes to the details of the ritual law, uh, a rabbi friend of mine said, hey, Jews are obligated to do and Gentiles are obligated to understand. So it's, it's just the searching out of these things and the way that so many things in the gospel narrative are related to a time on the Jewish calendar. That's not necessarily important for the moral thing that's happening there. But man, the allegorical stuff comes yeah. alive. Yeah. The attachment to the other places where that festival is celebrated in the sweep of scripture, it comes alive. The idea of the sod or the mystical meaning, that's why John says he came to tabernacle among us he's pulling on the ritual part of the law to say this mystical thing about who jesus is so amen yeah that's great yeah yeah jen absolutely okay i think since we're wrapping up we really are i just want to say i know all that this whole series and this talk tonight is probably like that's great kind of interesting but what do i do with this right and so i think the answer is twofold number one just pray God is so good. This is his heart. So just ask him. Pray for his heart on this. Pray for the people of Israel. Add it to your daily, weekly prayer schedule. Super easy, super accessible. You don't have to learn some new rituals to do it. So pray. I'm not trying to diminish no, no, ritual. <laughs> and the other thing, I'm going to teach you guys a Hebrew word as you walk out the door. Can you say tikkun olam? Tikkun olam is this Hebrew, two words really. Tikkun olam is this Hebrew concept that I think is so important and I teach it to my kids. Tikkun olam means fix the world. And our, there, it means that we as individuals can do little things throughout our days and weeks to fix the world. We can be nice to the person at the checkout counter. We can not flip off the person who just cut us off. We can do these things to, to be kind, to show kindness, to fix the world. And ultimately, our hope is that Jesus is going to come back and, like, really fix it, right? He's going to repair the world once and for all. And we believe that the last domino in that happening is that the Jewish people understand who Jesus is. But the dominoes before that is you being nice to the person at the checkout counter and you being friendly to the family member who you don't like so much. And all those things are little activations of you fixing the world, repairing the brokenness in the world. So go out tonight and tikkun olam, just carry that with you. Think of ways that you can take action to fix the world. And that's investing in Jesus being able to return and ultimately fix the world forever. That's really good. Yeah, you can come. That was better than any way I was going to end this thing. I'll tell you that. Um, hey, um, I know we talked at the beginning. Uh, you're not going to pray? Okay, fine. Well, since you said such a great thing there, we'll we'll. Uh, but, but Troy, just as we close, would you mind just kind of praying for us, over us, and just kind of uh, very much that we would um, go and do that? That would be awesome. Would you pray for us? Yeah, I'm in. Lord, we ask that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. Uh, Lord, not just the things that we're saying.
tonight from the stage or uh, anyone who's watching online, but Lord, we ask that you'd give us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand what you're saying to us through your scriptures, what you're saying to us related to who you are, Jesus. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And Lord, I also just ask that you'd protect us. Protect us from the lie uh, that this doesn't matter. Protect us from the lie that we have to do everything Jewish. Protect us from the lie that the Jewish people are better than ever, anyone else. And, and Lord, I just pray that you'd help guard our hearts against the wiles of the enemy. And Lord, I just ask that every person here who maybe didn't come in looking for anything of these details, Lord, that you would touch their hearts and minds and bring fullness to their life. Lord, bring healing to emotional pain. Bring restoration to broken relationships. We thank you that you've asked us to be ambassadors of reconciliation, ministers of reconciliation out in the world. And yet at times, Lord, we need you to reconcile us to one another and reconcile us to our families and to ourselves. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just extend your peace and your wholeness over every ear, uh, every heart, every mind. And we pray it in the mighty name of Yeshua, of Jesus of Nazareth, King of kings, Lord of lords. We bless him and we ask that you would strengthen us in the name of Yeshua. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we give it up for Jen and Troy and thank them for being here tonight? Hey, thank you guys so much. I hope it encouraged you. I hope it challenged you. I hope it uh, challenged your perspective a little bit and I uh, hope you took a lot of notes. I definitely, definitely did. And hey, if there's any topics that you want us to cover in seven combos in the future, in the uh, months to come, we do a seven combo every single month. Let us know what you want us to talk about, what we should be talking about. Anyways, hey, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you in the next one.